Good evening uh, once again as we continue this series in parent and child training. Here in session six, our task tonight is to look at some strategies for those younger years. Uh, I'm going to give some some definition a little bit to those that term here in just a few minutes. But our, our the idea here is those those young years from the time that those children come to us until they reach this kind of middle stage of development. How do we train them? What are those principles from the scriptures that encourage and exhort us as parents? And the scriptures give to us, I think, a goal from the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing, of course, to the Colossian church. He's writing as an apostle, as a pastor, and he makes this statement. He said, him we proclaim, this is Christ, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, obviously, here in Colossians, the context is an apostle writing to a church and exhorting and encouraging and correcting and teaching them in a multitude of ways. But Paul says this, he says, this is his goal. His apostolic goal, his pastoral goal is to see men and women come not only to faith in Christ, but to maturity in Christ, to, to reach a, a full development in their walk with the Lord. Now, with that in mind, knowing that that's the context, I still want to encourage us to think about this statement as parents. We're not pastors in our, in our homes, uh, strictly speaking, but there is a shepherding that goes on. Uh, fathers and mothers are shepherding our children. And, and as we think about how we approach these things through correction and through training and instruction, we have to have a goal. We have to have something in our minds that constantly encourages us as parents, constantly keeps us, if you will, on track, keeps us focused on where we want to go and where we want to see our children when they leave our home and direct the trajectory on which they ought to be already walking when they leave our home. And so I submit to you that this is a worthy goal for us as parents. The same goal that Paul has declared here we ought to adopt as parents in our own homes. Paul says this is his goal, that we can present our sons and daughters mature into, into Christ. So let's, let's co-op, as it were, Paul's pastoral statement, his goal, and let's take it for our own as parents. Our goal is presenting our sons and daughters mature in Christ. And then Paul says, for this goal, this is because he fixes his eyes upon this. He says, I toil, struggling with all his energy, meaning all of the Lord's energy that he powerfully works within me. So brothers and sisters, can as we as parents, can we imitate Paul here? Number one, with his sense of urgency, his willingness to labor. We have to recognize parenting is, it's hard work. And, and it's, it's a kind of work that requires a, a consistency, a faithfulness over time, not just in spurts, but we will be far better uh, serving our children with, with a, a, a frequent, consistent, faithful labor 
rather than than just just fits and spurts. So Paul says, I struggle uh, with all of his energy that he labors within me. So that's Paul's goal. And that's his 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 attitude in that. But what are the means that he says that he employs? Again, apostolically, pastorally, these are the means. But again, we're going to take this to ourselves as, as parents and employ the same things. The means, warning our sons and daughters. This means correction. It means reproof. It means rebuke. It means admonishment. There's a warning here. The, the word that Paul uses, and perhaps some of you are familiar with the phrase newphatic or newphatic counseling. Uh, Jay Adams coined that term uh, many, many years ago with respect to counseling. It gets based on, on the Greek word that has a wide range of semantic meaning. And it, and it has this idea of correction, has the idea of reproof, rebuke, admonishment, certainly instruction, but typically in a negative sort, in the sense of do not do this. So that, that Paul says, this is this is what we have to do in order to accomplish the goal of even with with grown adults who are spirit dwelt who who are in Christ, there still is a necessity of using the means, says the apostle, of warning, of correction, reproof, rebuke, and admonishment. And I think, if we're honest, we recognize that that's true. That's true even as as mature adults. There are times that we we need that. And then if that's true, then how much more do we need to employ the same kinds of means with our children who don't have the wisdom, who don't have the experience, and who, frankly, especially prior to conversion, don't even have the, the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Then Paul also says teaching. So warning and teaching. And he says teaching. And so let's, again, employ that same device teaching our sons and daughters, and Paul says, with all wisdom. So there is a positive instruction trying to fill their minds and orient their hearts towards wisdom, towards faithful instruction. Now, the means, as we think about this, if Paul's goal with grown adult Christians was to see them mature in Christ, he recognized as a as a pastor, as an apostle, that both the means of correction and instruction were crucial. And so I put it before you as a, as a proposition that our child training is incomplete without both correction and instruction. That we, we, we will not be faithful, frankly, as parents if we are not employing both correction and instruction in the training and the discipleship of our children. Listen to Bruce Ray. This is in the little book that I've recommended to you previously entitled with Hold Not Correction. He's, he's telling a story about his youngest son and being at the park and his son had climbed up on the, on the ladder to a, a tall slide and, and lost his, his grip and was falling. And, and as a father, he just reached out to grab his son to break his fall. And he's using that as an illustration. And he picks up there, he says, parents, our children are falling. Their descent is toward hell. And our intuitive reaction ought to be to reach out to catch them, to break their fall and to change their direction. We must stop them from their downward descent before we can instill into them the positive principles that will enable them to climb upward once again. It is in the light of this truth that we are to administer discipline. For Solomon says, you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. 
The discipline of the home is that force which can change the direction of the child or at least retard the breakneck speed with which he makes his steady descent. Now, Ray continues, he says, it is in the realization of this fact that Solomon can say to us, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy son spare for his crying. Proverbs 19, 18. Oh, it hurts a parent to administer discipline and the child cries when discipline is properly administered. But Solomon says to shut your ears against it. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from your God-given responsibility to discipline him. Realize what you are doing when you apply the rod. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from administering discipline because you are sparing him from a greater disaster by administering the rod. It may be that you shall deliver his soul from hell. And if I could, to add to that, not only are we looking at the spiritual implications, if we will discipline a child and recognize, as the author of Hebrews says, that no discipline is pleasant at the time. I mean, frankly, if we're doing our job as parents with respect to correction, whether that's verbal or whether that's physical, either way, it's it may not be pleasant at the time. In fact, in, in the case of physical discipline, it, it certainly ought not to be pleasant. It ought to hurt. It ought to sting but only temporarily. The, job, the, 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 the task of the parent, the goal of the parent is not to harm or not to hurt or injure a child ever, 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 but to inflict a measured amount, a proportionate amount of discomfort, of pain, so that what the Bible says is true. We are saving them from a greater disaster. Now, we know, again, we've talked about this as, as, as parents, as good, you know, Honest Calvinist, we recognize, we know theologically, we will never save our children. There's nothing that we can do to cause them to be born again. We cannot create faith in our children. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use means to accomplish his ends. And one of the means that the scriptures give to us very clearly is, is stated negatively. We must correct, we must chasten, we must chastise our children. And that includes physical discipline, includes spanking. And when we do that, not only are we, do we do that in the hopes of seeing them come to faith in Christ and recognizing the true gravity of their sin and wrestle with their own sinfulness and come to faith in Christ as their only remedy to flee to him for their only hope of escaping the wrath due to their sin. But also, even in the in temporal things, if we will chastise them and spank them when they are when they put themselves in danger, physical danger, emotional danger, social danger, we are sparing them perhaps the consequences of something far worse. If we, if through the course of of correction and instruction, children leave our home, for example with the ability to exercise a measure of self-control. They're in much better position to navigate all kinds of situations and circumstances throughout life. On the other hand, if they leave our home not able, never having been trained, never having been really genuinely corrected when they fail to exercise self-control, what happens the first time that there is a conflict within their workplace? And, and their failure to exercise self-control now has 
substantial consequences in the form of maybe losing their job. Uh, maybe there are maybe other far more severe consequences that could attend to a lack of self-control, just as, as one example. Another one is if, if our children are not corrected from their natural bent to think that they can just go wherever they want to go and do whatever they want to do and say whatever they want to say without the appropriate uh, permission, then what we're, what we're essentially training our children is to think that the world works in a certain way where they are the architects and that they are, in fact, in charge. And we, we actually may be hindering their safety because we haven't trained them to recognizing that there are, there are dangers in this world all around them and for which they must be on alert and, and ready to deal with those, those dangers. So we may very well deliver our children from a much, much greater consequences, even in this age, in this life, and certainly in the life to come, if we will be faithful as parents to correct them. I'll put together a, a graphic because I, I think it's important for us to think about this relationship between formative discipline or instruction and teaching and corrective discipline. And by corrective discipline, I mean physical and or verbal chastisement. And we need both. But, but the, the goal in this, this graphic that I, I put together is to help us think about this. Notice in the very middle, that blue arrow running from left to right is labeled maturity. Now, notice I didn't put age here because the, the, the Bible doesn't speak to us necessarily in terms of, of age, in terms of number of years or number of, of trips around the sun. It's maturity, and maturity is defined in terms of, of responsibility, um, self-management, being able to help and serve others. So there's a, degree, a greater degree of maturity. So we can, from, from birth to all the way to the left, birth and, and hopefully maturity in Christ, ready for the glories of heaven all the way to the right. And notice what happens. So in, in the, the flag or the yellow field above, I've labeled corrective discipline. And notice that as, as you move from left to right, from less maturity to greater maturity, the, the amount or the degree of corrective discipline diminishes. See, it starts very broad. It starts at the, at the, at the very youngest, the, the, the smallest degree of maturity. There's a much greater degree of corrective discipline necessary. And then over time, there's less. Notice, though, that the, that the little triangle never comes to a point. And I wanted to illustrate that, that the, the amount of corrective discipline is never zero. Even for the most mature saint, the scriptures still put, put forth to us that we will need correction. We, we will need the voice of our, of our great prophet who can show to us from his word and by his spirit where our, our thinking or our actions or our attitudes are not quite right. And we will still need the correction of the Lord. So corrective discipline starts with a greater proportion and, and over time moves to a lesser proportion. Now let's go below the arrow at the green flag, if you will, instruction and teaching. And again, notice it doesn't come to a point all the way to the left. The, the amount of formative discipline, instruction and teaching is never zero, but it is sufficiently or it is substantially smaller at that low degree of maturity. And as a child, and even as an adult matures, the, uh, this, the degree of formative discipline, the capacity to understand it, 
and the ability to make good use of it will increase. And so you see a corresponding, uh, in fact, proportional degree of as corrective discipline declines, formative discipline should increase. But notice that's tied to maturity. Uh, we don't start with a substantial amount of instruction and teaching. We begin with a more substantial amount of corrective discipline. And as maturity is gained, we, we will add to it more and more formative instruction, formative discipline. Now, I mentioned that I intentionally did not put an age here, but I'm going to show you uh, the, the next version of this same slide in which it's somewhat of a risk. I do put some ages here, but I want you to notice that, first of all, that they're very broad. These are general. And, and the second thing I want you to, to, to know is that these are not biblical categories. I'm not taking these from the scriptures and saying this is the scripture. The scripture gives us these age categories because we don't find it that way in the Bible. But I'm looking here, I'm appealing just to natural revelation and, and just wisdom and experience to give us some guidelines. And that, that's all that they are. They're guidelines, not, not strict numbers, but maybe helpful, uh, helpful ways to think about this. So notice also that the, there are three categories here, zero to eight years, eight to 15, and 15 years to what I'm calling launch. It's when they leave your home. But notice there's also, I've designed it or wrote, put this together with a an overlap because they're not hard and fast. Sometimes uh, the things that you, in, in some circumstances, you might not see until a child is, you know, eight, eight to 10 years old. But in some cases, uh, if you've been, especially if you've been faithful with corrective discipline and and you've, you've achieved a degree of, of consistent obedience with a son or a daughter, Maybe by five or six, you're seeing some of these things and are moving more into the principles that we'll discuss next time in those middle years. So I'm just thinking in terms of younger years, middle years, and later years. And, and again, these are these are broad categories, not a hard and fast rules. So, I, so I, I trust you to, to understand that and be able to apply those things. One of the things we need to think about with respect to instruction, and let's first of all define our, our terms. And again, think through the, the, the graphic that was just, just put before you. The, the amount of, of affirmative teaching is actually relatively small in these younger years. I said relatively small uh, compared to what they will, will need when they are teenagers, for example. You will spend much more time instructing and giving a, an affirmative case and explaining the why questions. At a very young age, it's, it's less on that but not devoid of that. It's never zero. You're always, always, always teaching as parents. And, and you will start with primarily teaching them rules and, and things that that in, in your home, your expectations. So your affirmative teaching will increase as they mature, as they're able to receive and understand more and more teaching. I mean, a child is, when a child is pre-verbal, they, even before they are able to speak sentences or speak complete thoughts to you, they will understand uh, far more than uh, sometimes they're given credit for. But even then, they're they not capable of complex instructions. So they need um, very clear, very simple instructions. And again, the emphasis is going to be a greater degree on correction. The emphasis is on giving 
clear expectations. Clear expectations. This can never be comprehensive in your household, but that's that's the thought, is that you want the the whatever rules, whatever teaching you give, you want that to be very clear where they can repeat it back to you. If, if particularly by the time they're you know two or three, they're able to repeat back basic instructions. But you want to have a, an emphasis on clear expectations while at the same time not being utterly hamstrung by those expectations. You want to, to be able to present those things to your children, but at the same time, you're not hindered as a parent just because you haven't said something. Don't allow a child, even a young child, to seek for a loophole in a sense to say, well, mama, you didn't actually tell me that I can't do that. When some things ought to be uh, very clear, even without an explicit instruction. We want to give as much emphasis as we can on on clear expectations. But, and, and perhaps I'll come back to this here in a little bit, our, sometimes when we are not able to give full instructions or not able to set our expectations does not mean automatically that corrective discipline is not appropriate. There are times when something should be so self-evident that a prior warning about it or prior instruction about it isn't really necessary. But there are also times when our, part of the correction, part of the training of our children needs to be such that they are learning how the world really works. So here's, here's just an example. If you have a young child, let's say two, three, four, I'm, just, I'm making up an age here, but just two, three, or four, and you've never actually told them, don't play with the chemicals that are under the kitchen sink. But you come in, and a child has the dish soap and has opened it up and poured it all over the floor. Well, you haven't given clear expectations ahead of time on that. But th does that mean that, well, I shouldn't or couldn't or or it's not appropriate for me to discipline correctively in that? And I would say, no, correction is, is precisely what's needed there. Because the child was operating under presumption that I have the right to go anywhere I wish and do whatever I want without permission. And so that that needs to be corrected. Um, you might, it might, you might be uh, to get away with a, a, a verbal uh, chastisement, but depending on the age and what kind of other circumstances, what kind of track record you've had with that particular son or daughter, um, physical chastisement is probably warranted. Not for just a mistake, but for a, uh, a violation of what we might call a natural law within your house. Uh, a child should not just expect that the world works in such a way that they can just go wherever they want, do whatever they want, and not seek permission in advance. Does that make sense? I want to move on to, to correction. This is where we're going to spend a little bit more of our time tonight, because again, we're looking at younger years, and we're looking at the at the principle that over time, 
our children will gain a greater capacity for that positive instruction, formative instruction. But in the earlier years, they need a greater degree of correction. And, and let me say this, one of the things that um, instruction is not, it is not where I see most parents struggle or most parents fail with respect to child training. It is not because they have not given sufficient instruction. It's because they don't give sufficient correction or the right kind of correction or in the right measure. So let me say that again, particularly in these early years, most of the challenges, most of the difficulties, most of the frustrations, most of the behavior problems, frankly, are not caused by not enough instruction, not enough formative discipline. They are caused by a parent's failure correctively to discipline their, their son and daughter. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time this evening is looking at correction. Proverbs, of course, is, is, is a, a gold mine of, of nuggets for us as parents of tremendous wisdom from the mouth of God himself. Listen to what the scriptures say about correction. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, the discipline here, is that formative or corrective discipline that's in mind? It's corrective. It's corrective. Um, it doesn't say he who loves him gives him clear instructions promptly. It's No, it's, it's there's a chastisement. There's, there's a correction here. And uh, in, in the immediate context, the rod is not metaphorical. The idea of, of a rod of striking a son or daughter is not a metaphor. It's not it's not a um, a, a, a type or something else. It's 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 a literal call for us as parents physically to discipline our children. Now I'll say more about the particulars on that here in a few minutes. Then Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. We looked at this verse several sessions back and looking at the idea of foolishness being not just a, an occasional feature of childhood, but foolishness being bound up, meaning literally he's, he's a slave to it. He's identified with his folly because that's that's his natural state. That's her natural state as a young child. But there's a there's an instruction to us as parents, the rod of correction will drive it far from him. So again, here's the idea of, of correction, not merely instruction. Proverbs 23, verse 13 and 14. Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. So here, now there is giving formative instruction to parents, but it's, in, it's formative instruction to parents to provide tangible, physical correction to our children. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. In fact... He will deliver his soul from hell. And lastly, Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and rebuke 
give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now, I submit to you the second half of that last proverb, Proverbs 29, 15, the second half, a child left to himself, that's that's not list. Our culture doesn't consider that a bad thing any longer. That's considered virtuous. That's considered, in fact, the ideal in many circles. In many of the forms of education, particularly if you read up on, on early childhood education, you look at preschool philosophies, early, early uh, elementary kind of things, it's the idea of leaving a child to himself, let them explore, let them discover, let them find their own way and just give them a little instruction and encouragement here and there. But the, the presupposition is that this fallen child has what they need to have in order to bring themselves up in the right way. And as Christians, we have to reject that. In fact, we have to reject it utterly and soundly. A child does not have innately or intuitively what they need to become. Again, our goal is maturity in Christ. That's our goal. And so the rod and rebuke. See, there's 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 two different ideas here, but both are corrective. Both are corrective. One is the, the rod itself, physical chastisement. Where do those balloons come from? Okay. The, the 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 rod itself is is pointing to a physical chastisement. Rebuke means a verbal chastisement. It means that we we are actually saying to our son, to our daughter, with our words, "You're wrong. You're in sin. This will not happen in our home." So when we think about correction. We, we need to think about what the scriptures say to us as parents. We have a mandate. We have, we have a clear call from the scriptures to in, not only to instruct our children, but to correct them. And as I said, in my observation, in my own failures as a parent, I've been a parent now for 30 years. And the, my, in my own experience, that was, that was my, the biggest failure on our part especially in our earliest years, was an emphasis on instruction and a underemphasis on correction. And in as a pastor, as I have sat with, I, I don't even know, I couldn't even count how many couples I've sat down with and, and have tried to work through, you know, specific behavioral issues or specific problems. And almost every time, especially with younger children, when, when we sort of do the, get the CSI team in and do the diagnostics and look at what's going on and evaluate the crime scene, what we find is a lack of correction. There may be a half-hearted effort at it. There may be some semblance of correction, maybe only in one parent, but not the other. Or there's really no commitment to correction at all. It's been an overemphasis, especially with young children on instruction, rather than correcting them. Bruce Ray, he's got a, a, a book, a small little book that I would commend to you called Withhold Not Correction. I've had it on the, the reading list previous to this, but he says this, the Bible says in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son. No, you say that. No, 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 that's not true. I love my son. That's why I don't spank him. 
That's why I don't apply the rod to him. It is the reality because you despise him. It is because you think lightly of the eternal state of his soul. However you may convince yourself, God says the truth is otherwise, and that the father who loves his child will chasten him betimes or early. He will chasten him early. Yes, when that babe just begins to manifest his rebellion against God and man, the father who loves his child will begin to chasten him. If you love your children, remember that discipline is not hate. Discipline is love. We want our children to obey us because we love them. We want them to be good children because we love them. We want them to obey God because we love them, and we want to see them saved and brought to a knowledge of the living God. This is why we apply the rod. If you apply the rod for any other reason, it is not biblical discipline. Biblical love demands the application of the rod. You know, we, sometimes when we see these, these commands in the scriptures, for example, he who spares his rod hates his son. We, we have this sort of defense attorney that shows up. Um, we have this voice in our head, or we have this voice that we would speak to others and say, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I mean. I don't really hate my son. I don't really hate my daughter. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking there's a different way. But we are rejecting the clear, unambiguous commands of the scriptures. Now, how do we apply this? Here are some principles of, of correction. Um, this is a, a blending of, I, I think, explicit biblical principles and, and also accumulated wisdom uh, from others that have been helpful to me, uh, my own observations, our, our own time as parents, uh, my time as a pastor and trying to help and encourage other families. But I think the, 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 the easiest one to understand, but sometimes the hardest one to get parents to actually embrace soon enough, is that the earlier you start, the less severe the chastisement is. There's no way to get around this. This is, this is true with anything that you are seeking to, to learn. Uh, if you are to, for example, learn a foreign language, what's the best time to learn a foreign language? The younger, the better, right? When, when, when everything is, the, the concrete hasn't set yet, it's still wet and, and it's still moldable. It's, it's much, that's just God, the ways God has wired us. But when a child is trying to learn habits of obedience, the earlier we start with the chastisement, with the correction, not just instruction, but correction, the less severe we are, we, we have to be. So for example, when you have a, um, an infant even, who is, uh, mom puts her down on a changing table to change a diaper, and the infant goes to thrashing, screaming, crying, because she doesn't want her diaper changed. Now, I'm not advocating uh, get, getting out the rod and and beating an infant. I'm not advocating that at all. 
But what can happen? A, a small little flick on the bottom of the foot to get that attention, even a, a puff of air blowing in the baby's face, followed by mom's very gentle but very firm, no, be still. And, and if that started early, then that baby will very quickly learn that he has to lay still while mommy or daddy changes a diaper. And, and, and if the earlier you put those into practice, you'll see that those, those actually work very well. Children can learn very quickly, but they learn in those early stages by correction. You, you can't explain to the six-month-old, well, now you have to lay still because if you don't lay still, you could roll off and there, you, could get, you could cause harm to yourself. They don't know that. They don't understand that. But they do understand a flick on the bottom of the heel or even just a finger or two, a, a gentle tap on, on a little fleshy thigh or bo bare bottom doesn't take much force at all to get their attention and, and, and coupled with a very gentle but firm, no, be still. So the earlier you start, the less severe. But if a child is four or five or six before they've ever really heard a true no that somebody meant, it's a much harder, much much greater degree of 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 commitment and even force is going to be necessary to gain the compliance of that child. The second principle of correction is is we communicate our expectations when possible. And I mentioned this earlier. It is not always possible because you you're the the laws in your household. It, it's impossible for those to be exhaustive right? It is impossible to foresee as a parent every possible way that your children could find to get into mischief or trouble, right? It's just impossible to come up with every conceivable situation. So don't think as a parent, just because I haven't explicitly said don't do X, that I can't or shouldn't correct them or chastise them verbally or physically when they've done something that's manifestly wrong. This is particularly true when it's areas of sin. So I'm not talking about an accident. I'm not talking about folly. I'm not talking about a, a child accidentally breaking something or knocking something over. I'm talking a child has, when, when mommy asks, oh, did, did you pour out your, your bowl of food on the floor? No. Oh, well, that's a lie. See, now we're dealing with, with sin. And if we've got to think back to our, our session on a biblical anthropology of children, do we believe that the works of the law are actually written on that child's heart. Do we believe that? Because if we do, then we know their own conscience knows that lying is wrong. See, they've sinned against their own conscience, whether they are consciously aware of that or not. And they need to be corrected. You know, and, and as, a, as a general rule in our household, things like that, things like lying, were, were met with uh, a, a swift and non-negotiable physical chastisement. You got a spanking if you lied. 
almost without exception. There are other things that are not necessarily a sin issue, but it's manifestly unwise or dangerous, and you have to use your judgment as a parent. Is this something that I'm willing to see happen maybe a few more times while I give verbal correction until they sort it out? Or is this something that, no, we're not even going to play with this as a possibility? A child runs into the street. You're out loading up the car. You're getting everybody else, and you look up, and the three-year-old ran into the street. Well, maybe you've never explicitly said, don't run into the street. But it may be. Wisdom may require you to take a few moments to take that child into the house very patiently, very gently, very calmly, and and give a spanking to that child and impress upon her or him that it's very dangerous to be in the street and this won't be tolerated. There will be no second chances on this because you you it's very dangerous for you to do that. You see, some some things require us, and this is a, this is going to require wisdom on your part as parents. One of those things that there there is no second chance. The first offense is going to require uh, maybe even a severe correction because of the nature, either because it is manifestly sin itself, or because it's the kind of folly that could really cause some harm to themselves or to someone else. Um, if you came in and a child was playing with matches or a lighter or something like that, well, you could see that 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 could be potentially very dangerous, even though there was no intent to cause a significant amount of harm because it's a young child and they just discovered this. But number one, they were probably meddling where they shouldn't have been. But also the nature of the offense, the nature of the action could cause grievous harm. And and I think wisdom dictates for us as parents to treat that as something that's worthy of a physical chastisement. But again, that's not a thus saith the Lord. That's that's me appealing to you on basis on the basis of wisdom. Does that make sense? Thirdly, principles of correction. Obedience is non-negotiable. Obedience is non-negotiable. And this means that when you have given instruction or you've given a command, that command needs to be followed fairly quickly, I mean reasonably, um, in keeping with that child's ability to do similar tasks in a a reasonable frame of time. But obedience isn't negotiable. If you have a child who begins to, to beg and plead to the contrary or make excuses, um, that, that needs to be corrected. You, you might, depending on the age, depending on the circumstances, you might try once with a verbal correction, but no more than once. If there's not a heeding of that, if there's not an immediate um, display of an eagerness to do what mommy or daddy has has commanded, then that, that needs to be a physical chastisement. Obedience is non-negotiable. Uh, and, and again, you, you're... We're, we're building up habits in our children at, a, at an early age that if we don't do this, the consequences will be severe. And remember the principle, the earlier we start, the less severe. If we think that a little bit of disobedience at two or four 
is okay, then we're in for a world of difficulty when that child is 14 or 16 or 36. They're, they're, if a child has not learned to submit his will to someone else, if a child has not learned to obey simply because he's told to obey, um, there are times when you will have opportunity to give reasons and make your case. And But again, think about our, our, our visual graphic from earlier. The earlier, uh, the earlier the age, or the, or the, or I should say, the the less degree of maturity, the less explanation, the less instruction, and the more correction ought to be, not ought to be done. So obedience is non-negotiable. Fourthly, whenever possible, yes, Gina. <laughs> um, I was just going to mention in that that one of the things when when our kids were little, and I I still stand by this that teaching them to hear your voice above everyone else's. Um, if yeah. you're in a crowd or you're like your example of a child running in the road, if they have been trained to hear your voice above everyone else and, and to obey, then mm -hmm. things like the road or things that are dangerous that they don't, they may not know. Um, but they, if they hear your voice and they come back to you and you've trained them that way, you can keep them out of harm's way. Um, and, and, you know, in, in public places, um, because they have learned to hear your voice, but as their parent, that should be, they hear your voice above everyone else's. That's, 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 that's right. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, and a child is going to have to sort out the noise, you know, if it's an only child, it's mom and dad at home. Well, there's, it's, it's not as hard, uh, to, to filter through that and hear mommy's voice, above all the other voices because maybe there's not another voice at the moment but as other siblings come along and this will happen one sibling will say to another mom said to do this and and a and a they need to even learn how to recognize ah that doesn't sound like something mom would say that doesn't sound like something mom has commanded that sounds like something you're trying to get me to do and so learning to to sort out um both in in a literal sense in a let's say at a church in a fellowship hall just where we where we are right on on a regular lord's day if or, or in the in the worship service if a child in the midst of all the other activity going on their ears are not tuned are not tuned to hear dad's voice or mom's voice saying sit still or be quiet or I need you to come here for a minute. Uh, it, 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 we need to labor to make sure that our kids are able to pick out our, our voices and that they're usually it's not a matter of ears. It's a matter of will. Will they hear that? Uh, fourthly, fourth principle of correction. We want to discipline in private whenever possible. The, the, the correction should never be a, a means of shame. Uh, shaming, public ridicule, is is never, never appropriate discipline. That, that's that's not a tool that we want in our in our bag. So we don't want to use the threat of public embarrassment as as discipline. However, there there's I'll give a a caveat to that, or two of them I guess. One, number one, sometimes it's just not possible. 
there, there are, particularly with young children, there are urgent circumstances. Sometimes it's not possible to take them off somewhere else private. The, the situation just does not allow for that. But secondly, sometimes the nature of the sin itself is public. And, and, and we're training our children for all of life. And public sins often come with public rebukes. And so it is whenever possible, whenever practical, whenever wisdom would allow for it, we want to discipline in private because shame is not our goal at all. But that can't be such a hard rule that we sacrifice our other duties as parents because we, we were not able to find a private place. The other part of this is just a, a, a wisdom issue. For most of us, if you spanked your child in the middle of the Walmart aisle, um, that's going to draw unnecessary and unwanted attention from the public. And so we, we just want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. A fifth principle when we're, we're with respect to corrective discipline, because we want our, our obedience to be non-negotiable, we want to we want to discipline in private whenever possible. So let's say there's been an infraction. You've taken your son or daughter privately into another room, in, into your bedroom, into an office, into a bathroom, someplace where you can deal privately with them. We need to labor to secure uh, an admission, a confession, and an agreement that what they did was wrong. And this is especially true when there's been actual sin involved. Um, and, and sin would include, even if the thing they did all by itself isn't sin, but it is sin if mom said not to do that and you did it anyway. That would be sin. You know, mommy said you were only allowed to have one cookie and you took another one. Well, having two cookies isn't objectively on its own sin, but it is a kind of theft if mom has said you get one and you took two, right? So we want to admit, we want to see them admit or confess their wrongdoing. And I think this has a couple of, of, of effects. Number one, we, we want to we want to be able to discern do they understand what the what the crime is so to speak do they understand what the infraction is but secondly the scriptures command to us to confess our sin we we are training them not only for this very moment this very season of their life, but for all of life, is there a pattern of confessing known sin? Because the scriptures are very clear that if we conceal our sin, it will not go well, right? So we want to train our children to, to freely confess that and to learn how to trust mommy and daddy when I confess sin and learn that I will be dealt with justly and hopefully patiently and gently. 
But here's here's something else that I think just as a, as, as a practical matter. Let's let's think of a scenario. This is a completely hypothetical scenario. This would never happen in any of your houses, but just 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 as a as a weird hypothetical. Let's say one sibling, sibling A, gets offended because sibling B took a toy from it. So sibling A does what any right-minded, you know, four-year-old would do. He hauls off and whacks sibling B in the head. So You've, uh, you've, you've sought the opportunity to deal with this privately. You've sat down with little Johnny. And now you, you, the, the prevailing wisdom is to say, Johnny, you need to go tell your brother you're sorry. But what if he's not? What if he's not sorry? What if given the opportunity, he'd do it again right now? Well, in a sense, what we're doing is kind of training little hypocrites. Uh, we're training them to rehearse and to say the line, and then we can get the discipline over with. Um, what we have practiced, and again, this is this is not thus saith the Lord, but what I think is more consistent with the scriptures is simply to confess what you did, that it was wrong. Because whether or not Johnny is sorry for striking his brother, we can't change that as parents. We'd love to be able to. We'd love to be able to reach in the chest and change that heart. But we can't do that. But what we can do is say objectively, the law of God requires that you not harbor anger in your heart against your brother and that you not strike your brother unjustly, unlawfully. And so you need to confess that this was sin. This was wrong, what you did. Or the scenario earlier, mommy said you could have one cookie. You need to admit that you that you ate two without mommy's permission. <clears throat> you see the difference? Um, it, it's good for our kids to learn manners and learn, uh, you know, good good social etiquette. And, and it is good to learn how to apologize. But it's 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 a better priority i think for us as parents to seek for them to admit and confess that they were wrong and trust that as as we labor to have them even form those hard words i was wrong or i have sinned those are hard words to say aren't they for any of us and, and as they are, are are learning how to do that we can trust that the Spirit of God will soften their consciences such that there really will be a genuine sorrow over sin in time. But we cannot produce that sorrow in them. But we, what we can do is insist that they acknowledge and confess that a law was broken. Whether it was God's law or dad or mom's law, it really doesn't matter. Um or it's not that it doesn't matter, but that, that's less important, that distinction, than it is to say, I, I did transgress. And then, uh, depending on the circumstances, uh, apply physical punishment as corrective. The, the, this is the part where we actually spank a child. 
And it, it is it is required of us that we do this. It's necessary for us to do this. We, we ought not to be ashamed or embarrassed of what the scriptures teach in this regard. <clears throat> so we need to apply physical punishment as, as a corrective. Now, with that said, here, here's some, some caveats or parameters there. There should absolutely be no striking of a child in anger. None. It's okay, parents, if we need to take a time out for a minute. Well, it's one thing we, we think about giving our children a timeout, but sometimes we need a timeout. It's okay to say, you know what, I, I, I need to think and pray for a moment, and, and Daddy will be back in a few minutes. That's far better than striking of a child in anger. Secondly, there should be no absolutely no striking of a child anywhere other than his or her bottom, maybe a hand, but to, to strike a child in the face, to punch a child, to push, those are assault. That's abuse. That's not discipline. Uh, discipline is measured. It is controlled. Uh, it, it is an exercise of the fruit of the Spirit within us. Love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. Against which there is no law. So our, our, our physical discipline of a child ought to be, in a, in a very real way, targeted. I don't remember. I didn't. I didn't number these, so I don't know how many I'm up to. But the next principle is make the spanking count, or don't do it. Here's what I mean. Let's say you've got the two year old that you've you've given a, a a clear command. Let's just say, Daddy said, "Come here," and the child sits here like this. Won't move. So one of the things that I see often is dad will come up and with his hand swat the diapered bottom a few times and then kind of drag the kid over to where he wanted the child to be. Well, what has happened there? Nothing other than exasperating that child. All you've done is reinforced that dad didn't really mean it to begin with. If a spanking is warranted, make it count. Uh, that might mean finding bare skin. It might mean being able to go, again, to a private place where you can administer physical punishment in a way that will actually have its intended effect. It should hurt. It should not injure ever, but it should sting. The writer of Hebrews says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it brings forth fruit. So if the discipline is not unpleasant, <laughs> if, the, if the physical discipline is not does not bring a sting or, or a pain to it, it's not effective. In fact, you're, you're probably better off not doing it. I mean, if you're, if you're either because you're in a public place or because circumstances won't allow for you to do it right, it may be wise to delay it or correct in a different way. Um, 
but if, if this is your, your, your pattern, you're going to frustrate yourself and you're going to frustrate a child. Um, it, it, the, the child will be, if they're conscious of it, will be thinking something along the lines of what, what are you, dad, what are you doing? You're, you're patting my bottom. Um, I don't feel a thing. It's kind of strange. So make this banking count. Are, are you tracking? Does that make sense? In response to the spanking, uh, crying is normal. You know, if you did it right and you got a, a little hiney that stings a little bit, that that's normal. But thrashing, screaming, angry crying, those are those are indications of rebellion, of disobedience. What you're looking for is a humble submission to your authority as as parent. And so if you're you've spanked a child and what you've what you have on the other side of this is a fit or um, a violent outburst, whether physical because they're kicking or thrashing, swinging their arms, trying to cover up their bottom, something like that. Um, that you, you can't allow that. Uh, in, in our in our home, if uh, someone was due a spanking, uh, when they were younger, they were in our lap. When they got a little older, maybe they were bending over a chair or a bed, something like that. And if there was, if they fought us in any way, verbally or physically, trying to cover up their bottoms, trying to um, squirm or turn around, then that just increased the number of swats they were going to get. Uh, we, we did not did not tolerate that because that's a lack of of submission. It's a lack of obedience. And remember, one of our principles is that obedience is non-negotiable, and that obedience up to and including the exercise of physical discipline. Oh, Erica, I see the hand up. Is that did that just go up or has that been up? Okay, here we are. Okay, it's it's been up, but it can it can wait till the end of the slide. I, I'm wanna... I'm sorry, I, I missed it. Go go ahead. It's okay. Well, it's back. Yeah. Well, hello. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a question, uh, Pastor David, just on this matter because yeah. I, I don't going back even to what you were saying earlier. Like this is very crystal clear in Scripture. Uh, I come from the era of Dr. Laura Schlesinger and others like her that kind of went for the shame first. Like you, you, I'm sure you're aware of like just what went on went on in that era. And I guess just now, kind of as a parent myself, is there any caution you can give to, like, I understand that it's required, but I'm also, you know, any kind of caution I'm having is because I saw the, the, the dark side of people taking, you know, the idea of corporal punishment and running with it everywhere. And I think you've covered that bit of that already with subsequently about, you know, like how discipline is to be applied and that it's meant to be, you know, corrective, but you know, it's also meant to be a matter of mercy, right, for, for the child ultimately. Yeah, and <clears throat> the purpose, if we, if we lose sight of the purpose of this, is, is where we're going to get into trouble. If we lose sight of the fact that the purpose of physical discipline is, 
is to train a child in in obedience with an eye towards a maturity in Christ. And so if we are striking a child in anger, for example, um, that's not going to be a fruitful or productive discipline, but it also is probably an indication that we have not been disciplining regularly and consistently as we ought to. Because one of the things that will happen is we can actually tempt ourselves as parents. We can think to ourselves, well, this is no big deal. I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I'll let it go. And then, and then it builds up and builds up. And all of a sudden I'm not letting this go anymore. Um, I, I was raised in a home with two, two brothers and, we, we knew exactly how to push my mom's buttons and she had read Dr. Spock and, and all those about not spanking. And, um, and so she tried very hard uh, to reason with us and to do all these things other than what we should have had from the beginning, um, a good spanking. Mm -hmm. And so we would push her and push her and push her until she was angry. And, as, as parents, we can very easily fall into that that kind of of pattern where we let things go, we let things go, we let things go until you know what? I'm sick and tired of dealing with this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna really take out my anger on my son now or my daughter now. Mm -hmm. um, I think there probably are very few exceptions when it comes to us as parents who have not fallen into that at some to some degree or another. It's very, very easy to fall into that. And so all the more reason to come back to our very first principle, early, the earlier we start and the earlier we, we address an issue, the less force required. Does that make sense, Matthew? Does that help? Yeah, yeah. And I think kind of in tandem with what you said about how it's not a shame exercise. So I think that was what really what kind of a lot of that was going for back at the turn of the century was to try to yeah. shame kids. Um, you know, I think that that helps a lot, just kind of as kind of rails as far as where it needs to be. And then also where, where you're going off, uh, you know, into yeah. an appropriate. Areas. So um, at, at the risk of, of adding to her many, many years of, of embarrassment that she's carried over this issue. Uh, Gina tells the story of being a, a young child in school and just for, for talking excessively or inappropriately she was brought up before the entire class and paddled in front of the entire class she was a good student i mean not a behavior problem not not a, an issue at all and and yet what you're saying i mean it was it was the public shaming of it it was kind of the public flogging that was the deterrent and the teacher it it appeared just i'm going to pick somebody out today and make an example of them and it probably just that gina happened to be the one that was standing there when whatever bell went off in the teacher's mind. And, and that was completely inappropriate. It's not the right way to exercise that kind of discipline. It, it doesn't in the long run, doesn't profit to use the, the shame or public embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, sorry, just one other quick question, just for those of us who are newer to Texas, what are the, what are the laws right now? Cause I, I get what you're saying as far as the wisdom of not wanting to attract unwanted attention you know, in Walmarts, but, uh, you know, 
like just just so we know if like we're telling a child come here now and you know someone's like well you can't talk to a child that way like what, what are the laws that we have you know we're dealing with that right now in the state in, in well and I'm, I'm not an attorney at all but in texas you have far more um explicit liberties here in that regard the the parental rights laws are much more robust here than they are in in many other places um working several years ago with some caseworkers and others within cps for example the child protective services there is um there is not a prohibition it's not unlawful to spank your child it's unlawful to abuse your child it's unlawful to uh to to beat a child so if you were to strike a child in the face for example that could justly land you in in legal trouble but a measured spanking on a bottom of a child is not unlawful in the state of texas um, your children can't be taken from you for that kind of discipline i think as a matter of wisdom it's probably not a good idea to do those things publicly if we can avoid that but in terms of the way that we you know speak to a child um the the law of god is going to be a far greater regulator in that regard than the laws of the state of texas for us uh, the laws of 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 charity laws of kindness laws of of um, treating our our children with dignity is it should be a far greater deterrent to us than you know the laws of the state of texas which are not going to address those things if you were to tell your child in the supermarket come here right now daddy said come here right now and you did it in a, in a very strong authoritative tone there's no law against that you, you you may run afoul of god's commandments in the way that we speak to one another mm -hmm. but that's as far as i know there's nothing unlawful in the civil realm Uh, lastly, as we think about these principles of, of correction, I think it's very, very important in, in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons to affirm our love and affection of our children um, and, and remind them, reinforce to them that our love is unconditional, that our, our love for them is not in any way depending upon their performance. So years ago, I asked one of, of our, our children, does daddy love you more when you obey or when you disobey? And a child naturally, I mean, he's going to answer, well, daddy loves me more when I obey. And I said, no, no, daddy loves you the same. Whether you obey or disobey, my love is the same. And then I can point them to the Lord and point them to Christ and say, this is how God has loved us, that even when we stumble, even when we sin, even when we fall, God doesn't cease to love us. God doesn't turn his face away from us. He doesn't disown us. And so it, it is right for us to affirm our love and affection of the child and, and express our approval of their person, even while we are correcting their behavior or their actions. So I think it's very important that we, we affirm that love and affection. 
let's think about some common battlegrounds. This list is not exhaustive at all. Uh, in, in your own home, you may already immediately be thinking of, oh, there's a couple other ones that I would add to the list. But common battlegrounds, and again, I'm thinking in this younger age, food. Food's a big battleground. Uh, either in terms of what they don't want to eat, that's perfectly good for them, or um, refusing to eat at all, or eating things, you know, basically that they were not authorized to eat, getting into the refrigerator, getting into the pantry on their own, and just, you know, basically foraging. Clothes. This is not universally true, but for, for many children, they want they get to a point where they want to start picking out their own clothes. And sometimes this is some a, a young child that just happens to like the, the red shoes. And it doesn't matter where we're going or what we're doing. I want to wear the red shoes. And there may be time. There may be times when you say, that's fine. Where that? I don't care. You wear that today. But there are other times when you will say, no, we're not wearing that. And that becomes a battleground. Um, of course, bedtime. Bedtime comes with its own set of issues because all of a sudden uh, the child who hasn't drunk water in four days needs drinks of water. Lots of them. They need a snack. They need a third bedtime book or a fourth one read. Um, sometimes we'll even there needs to be a, a longer prayer meeting before a child will will surrender to bedtime. Um, when uh, Emily was was little, I'm, I'm going to say three, you know, young, uh, we would pray at bedtime and she got to where we, we figured out pretty quick. This was a stall tactic. She would pray for all of her stuffed animals by name, individually. And at first, we, we wanted to be accommodated. We want to encourage this. It's a spiritual thing. And then we realized we're being played. And so we had to we had to rein that in. We didn't spank her for that, but we had to we had to rein that in and and say no, we're we're gonna we're gonna pray for you know humans for one. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna narrow the scope of of how we pray. Remember, I think it was our last or the session before last. Uh, we talked about the, the priorities of parents, and one of those is to train our children to pray. Um, so training them in, in what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So bedtime can be a battleground. Entertainment, toys. Um, well, I should have put on here a common battleground, siblings. <laughs> if you have more than one child, you, you have a constant battleground, right? Um, the potty. Um, as, as you begin, particularly begin to, to potty train, it's, it's amazing how a child will learn to weaponize that. Will learn to use that as a, as a source of manipulation. You'll say, I need you, I need you to go and, and pick up your toys. Oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Ah, okay. Well, I just asked you five minutes ago and you said you didn't have to go. And that may be true. But then you, you may start to detect a pattern where this is actually a cover for disobedience because they know I can do this. If I just tell mommy, no, I'm going to get in trouble. 
I need you to clean up your toys. No. Well, I, they know that's going to be a, a problem. But it's acceptable, especially during potty training time, that, well, I need to go to the bathroom. And it's no, it's no different, really, than I need a drink of water again before I go to bed. So just, just learning to see where, where things are legitimate versus where you're being played as a parent. Um, what are others, other common battlegrounds that you guys have faced? Think of others. Pass, maybe, like brush your teeth, wash your hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes just those very ordinary things where in those cases you've you've had opportunity to give positive or affirmative instruction. But for whatever reason, on this particular night, they're just refusing, don't want to do it. Uh, or there's a delay or something else. So, so how do we handle these common battlegrounds? In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the recording here. I can't figure out how to do this. Okay.